All right, it is uh, December 18th, 2005. We're discussing uh, Lesson 9 in Epistle of the Hebrews. We'll be taking two weeks off after this, uh, after this lesson. So our next lesson will be the 8th of January, 2006. Uh, let's open in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this season as we uh, reflect upon the things that you have done uh, on behalf of your people. Father, we thank you for uh, um, the Feast of the Dedication of Hanukkah as, uh, as it approaches, Father, and the, uh, and the remembrance uh, that it is a, a time for us to both dedicate ourselves, Father, and a time to remember the dedication that you have uh, uh, given to us in the person and uh, of, of Yeshua. And Father, we thank you also that you have reminded us of your holy temple during this as well. Lord, we ask uh, that we see uh, your holy temple rebuilt soon and in our days. And Father, we know that uh, in its uh, rebuilding, we will see the kingdom of Messiah uh, here on earth. Lord, we thank you that you have... Uh, given us this lesson as well during this time and its appropriateness in discussing the tabernacle. We ask that you would uh, guide our speech, guide our thoughts, and uh, uh, keep us uh, ever close to you, Father, as we study your word, we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Baruchut Adonai Hamvorach, Baruch Adonai Hamvorach, Leolam Vaed, Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Haolam, Asher Bakabanu Mikohamim, Venatan Lanu et Torato, Baruch Ata Adonai, Noten HaTorah, Amen. Bless Adonai who is blessed. Blessed is Adonai who is blessed forever. Blessed art thou, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed art thou, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. Well, I, I trust that everybody is simply doing a review of their uh, uh, tabernacle studies they've done in the past. Uh, if not, then maybe you learned something new. Uh, either way, it's a good reminder, especially this time of year as we've been talking about with the, with the season of Hanukkah especially. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Exodus 24, 8-9. We um, kind of had a... In Hebrews 2.17, we had this short mention of this high priest and this correlation between the high priest and Yeshua, our high priest. And then again, at the end of chapter 4, he does the same thing. Or she does the same thing. And it could be Priscilla. Who knows? Uh, uh, they do this. The writer does the same thing. And, and reminding us of this high priest. And then we're going to go on into chapter 5 and chapter 6. And then be reminded again in chapter 7. And really then go into depth in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. And all of the discussions in 7, 8, 9, and 10. And really including 3 and 4 as we've just left. Are all centered around this idea. He started on it in 2.17. Giving us Yeshua, our high priest. He does it again in chapter 4. Actually, go to real quickly. Chapter 4, uh, verse 14. Because he does it again, and it, and it, and it really, if, you, if, you, if you're easily distracted like I am, you know, I, I'm a, I don't know how you are, I'm an encyclopedia reader. But if I go to look something up in an encyclopedia, from a little boy, I remember this, go to look up something in a encyclopedia, 
I'd spend hours and never even look up what I went to look up because I'd get interested in something else. It appears our writer has the same problem. However, it's really not true because what he's doing is he's setting certain stages. He's not changing subjects. It appears like he's chasing rabbits. And he, and he is, but really he's establishing some, some framework for what he's about to discuss, specifically in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. He's giving us a understanding of why he's going to talk about it. So look at chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 14, where it says, Having then a great Kohen Gadol, high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Yeshua, the Son of God, let us hold tightly to our confession. For we do not have a Kohen Gadol who, cannot, who can't be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one who has been in all points tempted like we like we are yet without sin let us therefore draw near with boldness to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace uh, for help in time of need for every Kohen Gadol every high priest being taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he might offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins and he's going to keep coming back to this as we go through the chapters um, in these chapters chapters uh, specifically focusing specifically on 7, 8, 9, and 10 but actually starting in, verse, in chapter 2 and then specifically again here in chapter 4 these chapters the writer's going to use the tabernacle, the sacrificial, and priestly language and idioms. The problem is that our readers, our readers are intimately familiar with it all. It is a part of, just as, and this is why we spent three, four weeks looking at that. It is a part of their worship experience. It is not something foreign to them. It is, it is a daily thing to them. They're in the tabernacle, excuse me, they're in the temple daily participating in the prayers. They're there participating in the sacrificial system. They're there, and this is why it's such a challenge for them now that they're likely, and our, our presupposition is, they're being thrown out. We certainly know that's true after about 62. They're being thrown out. They're being kept out of this system by really by the ruling authorities but specifically because of their political clout the Sadducees but all of them I would include Pharisees as well let's not be unfair the Pharisees that were in the ruling class they either didn't have the political will or, or maybe they were in agreement with the Sadducees the point is the Sadducees even though they were in charge of the temple system the Pharisees appear to go along with their keeping the, 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 the believers out. And as we see after the destruction of the temple, certainly the Pharisees, being the surviving sect of the two Sadducees and Pharisees, are certainly uh, have, have a certain amount of animus towards believers. Uh, most likely a uh, result of several things, but most likely just a bitterness over the fact that they toughed it out and escaped. Some escaped the destruction of Jerusalem, whereas the believers split before it got bad because they followed their master's instructions when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies Luke 21 leave (laughs) and they did and henceforth they survived intact whereas the community of the Pharisees was decimated and the community of the Sadducees was obliterated they were gone so we see that there is a certain amount of animus so, but understanding before this, the animus is probably not related to uh, anything other than just the just the affront that these people 
claimed to uh, know the Messiah, number one, that he rose from the dead of all things for Sadducees, how awful that is, but even for the Pharisees saying, listen, you're just getting, you're making things difficult for us. So certainly there is a problem and they are likely thrown out about this time or shortly thereafter. So these are things that they're intimate with. They're things they desire, which is one of the reasons we surmise for this book. It's, it's detail in showing them the correlation between what they experienced and had been experiencing in the temple system and what we understand Yeshua's role in the heavenlies. But remember, it's all, it's all presented as comparisons as opposed to contrasts. If it's contrast, then we have theological problems that need to be resolved through either a system of dispensationalism or supersessionism, replacement theology. Because without a smooth, unbroken line from Genesis to Revelation, we have to come up with some other way whereby we can say this old stuff went away. Right? You have to invent a theological system. Or maybe it's the true theological system we'll surmise. And you have to then come up with an additional question of why the writer didn't specifically say command. Get out. In, in addition to the contrast. Very good. Command. Exactly. That, and that's precisely correct. He beats around the bush an awful lot if he wants them to leave yeah. the temple system. And in fact, he uses the temple language in glowing terms, and as we're going to discover when we get later on in chapter 9 and 10, in terms that most classic commentators don't even recognize because they are blind to the idea that it might be a good thing. <laughs> I don't know why, why. Why are we taught that sacrifices in the temple are a bad thing? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, for the life of me, I don't understand it. Now, having having my my uh, my Bible study training coming from someone like like precept ministering and K. Arthur, you know, never did I ever hear anything negative about the temple or the sacrificial system, and a recognition that it is it was a messianic hope that it would be reestablished. I, I agree. Yeah. You know, with that same training, uh, the, the thing that I've noticed in talking with, with with strong believers in the church today is they, they can buy everything that we talk about normally until you mention sacrifices. sacrifices yeah. Well, you wouldn't sacrifice. I agree. There was a temple. Exactly. Would you? I agree. I agree. And, yeah. That's where you know you draw the line, and yeah. we've not touched on this. We might have yeah. might have been able to do okay. And, but it's an est- it's it's this eschatological study that actually actually can show that as a not a bad thing. And it's Zechariah 14, where everybody's going to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles, and it says they're going to sacrifice. So, are you not going to? <laughs> and like you said, we've just never we've never heard in the church. And this is something we're gonna we're gonna talk specifically. We're gonna spend uh, at least a lesson in sacrifices in January, and the reason why is because the misunderstanding of sacrifices is that all sacrifices have to do with substitutionary atonement, and all sacrifices have to do with sin. This is not a true teaching, and it is it is so so divorced from the biblical representation of sacrifices. It's almost it's almost comical because few of the sacrifices have to do with sin. They have to do with something else. And that's what we're going to focus on because it will help us understand how it is, in fact, that Yeshua is both the sin sacrifice 
and all the others as well. And if you had a quick idea and understanding of those sacrifices, you would understand that before he came, they were all pointing towards him. Why not do them here to point back towards where he was? I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. But I, am, I, I recognize, and I am very, and I'm very understanding of people who have a difficulty with it, because we, in no way would we ever want to diminish the ultimate sacrifice mm-hmm. of our Messiah. How could that possibly... We shouldn't even consider such a thing. And to some, to, to talk about him being reinstated would be, a, would be an admission that somehow that Yeshua's sacrifice is insufficient. It never be. Never be. Exactly. Exactly. Precisely. That's exactly the way I feel about it. Because we may not be familiar with all the language, and I, and I understand that we have very le- various levels of understanding you know, to those who are listening of, of the language that we're talking about. That's why we spent the time this week looking at the tabernacle and not even looking at Hebrews. So let's go over some of the things that we learned. Let's go to Exodus 25, <clears throat> verses 1 through 9. I told Jack I began to feel like Tavia talking about the chicken. There's somewhere something about the chicken, but I don't have to a long time and that's actually a good question how do you know a chicken's kosher <laughs> uh, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying speak to the children of Israel I love that you know this is the, it's like we talk about this is the most repeated phrase in, in, in all of scripture and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skin, dyed red, badger skins. <laughs> all right, all you Torah scholars, what's a badger skin? Dolphin. Yeah, is that amazing? <laughs> Dolphin skins, okay. And acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil, and the sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod on the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you. That is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So what was the purpose of the tabernacle and the temple? As we discovered in in Solomon's plea to the Lord, we see that the Lord recognizes the temple built not by the same standards or dimensions. Or even the same furnishings, some of them, but not all. And yet God honors the temple as if it were a version of the tabernacle which was traveling, a permanent version. So, we use them interchangeably. Understand that the writer of the Hebrews is speaking specifically of the tabernacle and his imagery. So anyway, what, what is the purpose of the tabernacle and the temple? <laughs> that I may dwell among them. Rem- always remember that. This is like a super big point. Anytime you talk about 
the, the Beit Midrash, anytime you talk about the Holy Temple, is to speak of it with the understanding, and the, and the, and the uh, Mishkan, the tabernacle, is to speak it with the understanding, it is not, it is not meant as a dwelling place for the Almighty. It is meant as a place where He can dwell among them, us. Okay? It makes the imagery of Emmanuel him among us as it were all the more powerful and the picture is so true um, where the temple is a is a wonderful parable as it were to the reality of the incarnate God of the universe dwelling among us in human form as a, it's, it's almost you know, without words. That he may dwell among us. That's right. From this point on, throughout the Torah, is is I don't I don't have a favorite part. Well, I do, but I don't. Uh, but it's so wonderful because you always find this tabernacle, and the and the people are always encamped around it. It's amazing. They're, they're never separated from it. They're always with him. He's always with them, more importantly. So, uh, the tabernacle was to be built according to the pattern shown to Moses. Where was the pattern shown to him? Are you sure? <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's not a fair question. It says the mountain. Well, he might have. We don't know. But it says on the mountain. Yeah. What was on the mountain? God. God was there. That's right. God was there. It says he descended. A cloud descended. He descended on the mountain. Thunder, lightnings. And in fact, Moses is getting a... a wow, it's not even a multimedia show. I mean, he's getting the... He's, being, he's not seeing a fake. He's not seeing blueprints is the point. These are not blueprints he's been exposed to. He's seeing something that is real, which is what we talked about in this word, tabniet, a pattern, a copy of a real thing that already exists. It is, it's it's, it's kind of like the idea of cloning something. You can't clone something that isn't already exist. And this is, this is what this word means. This is not a blueprint. It's never been built, built this. That is a false idea. This is a, this is a earthly representation of something that God showed Moses while, quote, on the mountain. Okay? God showed it to him. He saw it and he says, build it just like that. In a really weird sense, I think that I always think of this as being sort of allegorical and the tabernacle was the physical representation. But in reality, whatever the original was that Moses was getting from, the other way around. Most real things. Okay. When we get into the next part, I don't want to sell this too much, but we get into this stuff we're talking about in January. We're going to talk about we're going to talk about Plato's cave analogy a little bit. Because it plays a very important role in understanding this book of Hebrews as a counter to this idea. As if the writer well, maybe the writer of Hebrews knows this. He's certainly 200 years thereafter. Uh, so he certainly has this understanding of the common way of looking at things. 
And he almost turns it, well he does, he turns it on its head. He turns it completely on its head. Here, it's true. Here's the real thing. You saw it, I showed it to you on the mountain. But then he turns around and he says, build it just like the pattern. And I'll... And I will dwell among them. In other words, if you do it, I will dwell among them. The idea is that this shadow, this, this tabernacle is not fake. It's real too. It's not a separate thing. It's a copy of another thing. Neither is real over the other. Well, let me rephrase that. There is a greater. However, they're both a part of the reality of what the Israelites were going to experience. Neither is truly a shadow. Neither is truly a shadow. One might say, one might say, it would be impossible for the Israelites in this realm to experience what Moses saw apart from the shadow of the tabernacle itself. It was the only way to see it. And what we're going to talk about this is the difference between what's seen and unseen. The only way for them to see it themselves was to build it. Although I must start playing games from the physical dimensions and weights and things with the physical tabernacle that was built, one begins to wonder how much of it was actually in this dimension anyway. Exactly. What we discover is, and as we as we get to the end of this lesson, exactly what we see is we see that the dwell indwelling presence of God in this place. Cannot conti- cannot be contained, and yet it's there. We we've talked about this before. The dimensions of the of the ark and the and the carabine can't fit. You know, it doesn't fit because of the way the poles were left in. The poles were never taken out. The poles went forward, back instead of side to side, and that they couldn't fit in the dimensions, and yet they fit. How they work. Ooh, I don't know. It's cool stuff. Go to uh, chapter 25, verse 40. I love this kind of stuff. This is really, this is exciting to me. But see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. This is his instruction. Listen. I want you to make it according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. <clears throat> One might think that Moses was only partially successful based upon theologies that have come since this temple was destroyed. One can only... uh, Even that maybe Solomon was unsuccessful or Zerubbabel was unsuccessful. Yet if we go back and we follow our scriptures, what we discover is each one of the builders was successful. Was successful. They answered the call precisely. Even to the point where that where it, 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 as we read it, as we read that, that the uh, the builders of the of the second temple said, "Oh, it's nothing. It's, it's not. How does it ever compare to what we what we had before? It's nothing." And God rebukes them. Well, it's not nothing. It's where I will dwell among you. Now we know that the that the, that the indwelling presence of God was not ever present in the second temple and yet they still were faithful in doing it and God did rebuke them for their for their uh, for their really their pessimism having built it and not having the same glory as it were that Solomon's temple had what do you say doctor? unsuccessful is a very relevant term the presence of God dwelt there 
as about as close to heaven as you can even begin to imagine. I think it's a pretty big success. Absolutely. Demonstrably. Demonstrably, yeah. Look at some of these furnishings. These are uh, these are really good. Uh, starting in verse ten, chapter twenty-five, verse ten. I hope you all caught my reference uh, mistakes. Anytime you find a reference that's off, it's usually off by a chapter. And here's the reason why: my Bible software has this bad habit that it only has the has the chapter, and if you have a previous chapter present, it shows that chapter as the current chapter. And so that's why it happens. So anytime you find that, go to the next chapter. You'll probably probably find your verse. So I apologize. I I try to catch it, knowing the fault is there, and I'm not always successful. Chapter 25, verse 10. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length. By the way, who made this ark? Does anybody remember? It's a low. Yeah. Uh, but why does it say they? Yeah. Who, who, where's the we in Bezalel? <laughs> yeah. yeah, Bezalel was like, wait a minute. What do you mean? What's this we part? <laughs> well, you had one guy that did one guy that did metal Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll buy that. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length. Half a cubit and a half its width. And a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it. And make and shall make on it molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood. No, overlay them with gold. You should put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be rings shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. Right? Don't take them out. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. By the way, what testimony do you think he's talking about? It's a couple varying theories based on various scriptures that don't seem to agree. Yeah. We would say that the, the tablets, the stone tablets, the second set of stone tablets. But there's also some, ver- some so a theory of what is called the book. Uh, also, whether it's separate, speaking of the same thing, who knows. But there's several different uh, approaches to that. And you shall make two carabim of gold, hammered work. You shall make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one carab at one end and the other carob at the other end you shall make the carabim at the two ends of one piece with the mercy seat you know that talk about a cherub a cherubim it's that's actually not correct it's a carob or multiple carabim it's the plural and the carabim shall stretch out their wings above covering the mercy seat with their wings and they shall face one another the faces of the carabim shall be toward the mercy seat you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you and there I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat from between the two carabim which are on the ark 
of the testimony about everything which I give you in commandment to the children of Israel. You shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit of its, its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make it a molding of gold all around. You shall make it for a frame of, ha- of a handbreadth all around, and you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that are in at, at its four legs. And the rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and the table that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be hammered work, its shaft, its branches, its bolts, its ornament knobs, and flowers shall be of one piece, and six branches shall come out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. These three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch, with an ornamental knob and a flower, and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch, with the ornamental knob and flower, and and so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower, and there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece. All of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. Imagine now almond blossoms, bowls, all of this coming from one single piece? You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they shall give light in front of it. And it and its wick trimmers, and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold and all these utensils. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which is shown to you on the mountain. Wow. So, here are the major furnishings. Ark of the Testimony, with two facing cherubim. The table of the bread of the face, and that's actually not quite correct. It's not of the face, it's just face bread. <laughs> it says show bread, I don't know what show bread is. Face bread, I don't know what face bread is either, but at least that's a correct representation of what it is. Bechem panim. Bread with sides to it. I don't know. I don't know what face bread is. One interesting thing is the word panin is not merely face. It's a little more personal than face. It is. It is. A menorah with seven branches. Okay? These are the major furnishings found within the tabernacle. Anybody know the significance of the almonds? Anybody have a view of the almonds? Any of your studies come up with anything on almonds? We'll look at that as we get into the next... uh, few lessons we're going to talk a little bit about these almonds but just to give you a picture of what an almond what's an almond look like what shape is an almond in that's true it's in the shape of an almond which reminds you of if you turn it sideways what's it remind you of an eye remember that (laughs) 
I love this stuff. This is great. God was so wise. God is so wise. You know, he, he just, he, yeah, he he knows how to how to how to attract us to the things that he declares to be holy. Uh, uh, chapter twenty-five, verses twenty-one through twenty-two. What was the purpose of the ark? Other than holding, let me rephrase that. What was the, ter- pur- the purpose of the cherubim facing each other? Focus point. For what? What's the focus point there of? The He's going to. It's going This is where you're going to meet, and this is where I'm going to speak from. Where does the king speak from? And this is exactly why the ark is considered the throne. The throne. Okay. Cherubim has a very uncertain uh, origin. Cherub. Uh, the Hebrew does not declare what it, where it comes from. There's a lot of different variations. Uh, and we'll talk about it when we start talking about brass, too. There's a connection between brass, uh, or bronze, rather. I mean, same thing. Uh, copper, copper tin alloy. Um, however, one, one theory is that it's from being near. The, uh, and near ones and the, the, from the Hebrew uh, like to draw near when you approach the, the, uh, the altar itself the, the, they're the near ones they're the ones that are closest to the Almighty which would stand to reason with the idea here of them flanking his throne we see these teravim throughout this Go over to 26.1. We can see them again. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread. And the artistic designs of the caravine, you shall weave them. What kind of material is the, are the curtains to be made of? Wool. Does anybody know the kind of material that the high priest's garments were made of? Wool and linen. Which is why we are prohibited from wearing wool and linen mixed together because it's high priest. With one exception. These are wool and linen. Commanded to be wool and linen. Why? Why? Why are, why are tzitzit wool and linen and yet we are commanded not to mix wool and linen? These are high priest's representations. These are pictures of high priests. This is the only thing that you're allowed to wear that represent what a high priest would. Now wait, the curtains are made of wool. Well, there are parts that are... As we move on, but let's take the wool for now. The material of the high priest, the clothing of the high priest, is of the same substance as the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. It's the same stuff. Even the same colors. colors. Is there significance to this? Well, our writer in the book of Hebrews finds significance and we'll talk about it as he goes into it. Because he finds the same pieces. He draws upon these pictures that these people know. Oh, yeah, 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 whatever. This is common to us. (laughs) Well, maybe they didn't understand why. I don't know. Maybe they did. But these caravim are found all the way through this. Look at over verse 30, uh, 26, verses 31 through 37. We're going to focus on this next week. You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread. And fine 
woven uh, in fine lo- woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of caravan. Oh, wait a minute. Now we have linen. And the thread also of, and if we have blue, we also have wool. So here's woven linen and wool, just like the high priest will wear. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. How much bronze is found inside this building? None. Gold and silver. Where's the bronze? The brass. It's outside. And you shall hang the thin veil, excuse, the veil from the class. You shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. What's the purpose of the veil? It's a divider. You shall set the table outside the veil and lamps it across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. You shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be with gold. And you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. Oh, excuse me, there's bronze on the outside, but it's not on the inside. <coughs> so, the caravim are everywhere. Is it a motif? Is it a decoration? Let me ask you a question. How comfortable are you with the idea of, I don't know, you've probably had agnostics ask this, hey, how come God said you're not supposed to have any idols, but then he had them put, like, angels on top of the ark? What's up with that? Have you ever had any agnostics that were that bright? Well, that's true. Agnostics generally are. Okay. University religion professors. What's up with that? What is up with that? Do you have an answer? Well, I mean, you just alluded to it. If we address this as a king and his court and his attendants, you never, you never find a king by himself. Exactly. We read uh, Very good. Portion, Excellent. And we saw Isaac off in the distance, and Rebecca sees him and gets down and falls off the camel, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we were kind of, as you read about Isaac in other places, uh, certainly a picture of Christ, he seems to be a fearsome man. Yeah. Very powerful and unbelievably wealthy. There's no way this guy could have been out in that field by himself. Well, there you go. So perhaps you saw this guy. With all of his entourage, well, who's that? Yeah, guy? am I going to marry him? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Same kind of thing here. We, yeah. we see Good. a king and, yeah. and I like that. Appearance. I like that. And this is supposed to be um, replicated according to the pattern that he's been oh, and so and so he's seeing all of these exactly. What does he see? You see, we, we, we are given pictures of this. Isaiah 6 gives us this picture as well. The, uh, the book of Revelation gives us this picture as well. What do we see? Well, we're seeing, when we look at the tabernacle, we're seeing what Moses saw. We see the tip of the mountain. Was there. Yeah. I mean, this, this is like, wow, this is, this is a powerful picture. What flanks the throne of God? Carolvin. Remember that as we do study next week. But this Holy of Holies is separated. The veil, the veil had a single purpose. 
What I would like to offer to you, and I want to say this carefully because I don't want to, I don't want to confuse what, where we're going to go, but at the same time, I'd like to offer that the veil's purpose is to divide, but not to exclude. I know for myself, the idea that the veil in the temple being rent is, is a picture of access to the throne of God or, or, and all of those things, as if it were the veil that kept me out. The veil itself did not keep me out. It was my sin that kept me out. If it were not for the veil, or if the veil is what made access to Him not visible to me. The purpose of the veil is to hide something. I would go further and say that the, the veil also protected you. It did. No question about it. The that veil protected you. Absolutely. Absolutely. As we're going to discuss as we get deeper into the tabernacle system, all of the tabernacle systems protect, all of the tabernacles uh, things that we're going to see in, its, in themselves were protection to protect the people. God's holiness could not dwell here without consuming the people unless these protocols were followed. Period. Couldn't happen. He couldn't dwell among us without these safeguards in effect. Don't let them touch the mountain. Don't let them touch the mountain. You know? If they touch the mountain, they will die. You know, don't let them come across the barrier here of the Levites who are guarding the entrance to the tabernacle. If they're unclean, they will die. Don't let them. Don't let them come into my tabernacle with, as we see with Aaron's sons, with strange fire. Or they will die. It has to be done right, or they'll die. That's not a that's not a that's not a mean God. That's a loving God. That's providing. A way to approach him, the infinite, within the confines of the finite. Yeah, it's like Jesus said, see, I have told you ahead of time. That's, is this bad? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I told you ahead of time. He's not doing this to be picky. He's not like, you know, someone who just has a really bad temper. He's actually, because of his holiness, Very good. they cannot approach except within these certain defined limits. And the approach is a good thing. And he wants it to happen. But it has to happen his way, or it can't happen at all. And he says that throughout the read here, a lot of the kind of random commands, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, some of the things it deals with is the idea that I am in your midst, so you must be clean and holy and set apart, so that I can stay in your midst, because there's certain things you have to get fixed to. Now, the writer is going to use, as we go through these next six or so chapters, the writer is going to use this picture of holy place holy of holies and the furnishings as as uh, really as prompts in his discussion to help us to understand something very important about the high priesthood of Yeshua 27 1 through 8 you shall make an altar of acacia wood 
five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square. The height of it shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay it with bronze. And you shall make its pans to receive its ashes and its shovels, its basins, its forks, and its firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze. And on the network you shall make four bronze rings in its four corners. You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath. And the network may be a midway up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay with them with bronze. The poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be put on two sides of the altar to bear it. You shall make it hollow with boards. And as it was shown on the mountain, so they shall make it. Make it just like you've been shown. Alright, well, it's not a great graphic, but anyway, there it is. Is that where you put everything? The entrance to the to the tabernacle itself is right there be, between the labor and the altar, or excuse me, next to the labor. The little box outside the ark uh, we'll discover later is the uh, altar of incense. The main altar outside, and then of course everything was within another enclosure. And as we know from the second temple period, there were multiple enclosures surrounding all of this. Um, this was all in one enclosure. There was a smaller enclosure that uh, kept out Gentiles and women. There was another enclosure that uh, kept out uh, people who were unclean outside of that, not including women and Gentiles. And then the mountain itself was declared uh, sacrosanct and surrounded by a wall, which is the remnant of what we know as the Western Wall today and the Southern Wall in Jerusalem. Uh, the menorah is on the south side. The table uh, for the bread is on the north side. The ark is on the west side. The altar is on the east side. Always. Our ancestors prayed towards the rising sun. And yet God wanted them to not pray towards the sun. But that place where his name was placed. And it's why... Jews for 3,000 years prayed facing Jerusalem. If you were to the east of Jerusalem, you faced west. And if you were to the east, and if you were to west of Jerusalem, you faced east. North, you faced south, and south, you faced north. All right. Let's read about this tabernacle being erected and some of the issues that come up that are often escape our attention because we're so excited about a tabernacle being built that we kind of miss the point of it all. Starting in chapter 40 of Exodus, verse 16, he says, Thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So he did. Was there something he left out? No. Then Moses, excuse me, and it came to pass in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, first month of the second year on the first day of the month which would be Nisan 1 or Aviv 1 that the tabernacle was raised up so Moses raised up the tabernacle fastened its sockets set up its boards put in its bars raised its pillars all by himself and he spread out the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it as the Lord had commanded Moses 
And he took the testimony and put it in, in the, into the ark, inserted the poles into the rings of the ark, and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of the covering, and partitioned off the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. Do you know that there's 20 chapters with some various little small things? But there's 20 chapters of this. Plus, why does God waste... There's, you know, why does it appear that God wastes such words in the construction of the tabernacle? About what other things that we don't get any information about? You know? The contrasts are, like, profound. You know, it's like, hello? You go into all this detail about building the tabernacle. You know? Tell us some other stuff. We're kind of left on our own, you know? Here he goes into all this detail, and why? He wants us to know. Moses did it exactly right. He put the table into the tabernacle of meeting in the north side of the tabernacle outside the meal, just like he was told. And he set the bread in order upon, upon it before the Lord, and the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tabernacle of meeting across the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and he lit the lamps before the Lord, and the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses, he put the golden altar in the tabernacle of meeting in front of the veil. And he burned sweet incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses he hung up the screen at the door of the tabernacle he put the altar of, of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered up upon it the burnt offering of grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses he set up the labor between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water there for washing and Moses and Aaron and his sons could, would wash their hands and their feet with water with, from it whenever they went into the tabernacle of meeting and whenever they came near to the altar they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses and he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys but if the cloud was not taken up they did not journey till the day that it was taken up for the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys but when he first sets it up God's presence fills it and he is driven from it he can't be there so did it work or not what was its purpose was its purpose that God could be there when they couldn't be there no did Moses fail in his construction of it that it didn't work no he did exactly what he was told just according to the pattern exactly what he was told to do don't you wonder how he couldn't get it he was driven from it I mean it's essentially it was like you know well there's a couple of things there the first time the book of Revelation talks about at the end, when the seals are to be broken, the last glory quote, fulfills the temple. And no one was able, no to, one was enter. able to enter until, until the bowls are poured out. Poured out. Right. So, um, it's an interesting parallel. In addition, it's also interesting to note that um, we see the next book not precisely how they will interact with the Ah, that's the key. The priesthood. That's exactly the key. And as we're going to discover, this is, this is a very important point for us to understand the purpose of the tabernacle is a portal or a doorway as it were that God could dwell among us however the tabernacle in and of itself cannot achieve it the priesthood cannot achieve it 
Aaron and his sons are already here, present. We're going to read, and we get into Leviticus, something additional has to happen with them. But basically, they're chosen, they're dressed out, they're decked out, they're doing everything they're supposed to do. And it works that God's there, but he's not dwelling among them because they can't approach him. Something else is needed. And it's upon it that it's one of the things that the world exists upon. And that is the service, the sacrifices. Without the sacrifices, one cannot approach. That'd be good. That'd be good. But it still isn't what you asked for, right? It's still not what was promised. Well, among them. To be among them is not to be, okay, he's over there. It's to be, he's here. He's here. I'm near. I'm near. He's near. That, it, the sacrifices are the point. The sacrifices are what provide the vehicle that allow men to enter that infinite space and to commune with the infinite God, as we're going to see when we move on to the next lessons. Yes, correct. So they hadn't been out of Egypt real, real long no. when all of this happened. And it records a little bit earlier in Exodus about how God had been traveling with them and a, and a cloud and fire. The day and fire, a pillar of fire at night. And then that's the way Exodus ends here with this cloud. Yeah. And so it's just the same cloud and pillar that's been, you know, kind of shepherding them around the right. wilderness and now it finally has a place to, to, to be right in the middle of them rather than maybe on the periphery or something. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Not far off, right there. Mm-hmm. In, in Exodus uh, 40:35, the Shekinah, the uh, glory of God, fills the tabernacle, but God could not dwell among them. He was still distant from them. Moses was driven by the tabernacle by the overwhelming of God's presence. No one could still approach God. And the book of Leviticus is, in large part, the answer to that problem. It's not a problem God didn't foresee. It's part, of the, it's part of the process. God's progressive revelation. Whether Moses knew at the time or not, who knows. The point is, God was prepared and immediately begins to reveal. That's why school children learn. Uh, in ancient days, learned the book of Leviticus first. Because it explains how is it that we can go to that temple that's been built. There it is. How can, why can we go even go into it? And the reason why is because of the sacrifices. Okay? <laughs> there were priests, Aaron and the son. There was a tabernacle, but something was lacking, and it's the sacrifices. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to use that. I didn't... I've left something out here. Let me uh, talk about the pattern. Let me just read this real quick. This is interesting. This is a parable. Uh... Joshua of Sikkim said in the name of Rabbi Levi, you have a Rav Levi, you have, you might suppose that when God said to Moses, make me a tabernacle, it would have been sufficient for him to set up four poles and spread a tabernacle over them. That would have been a tabernacle. But the Holy One, blessed be he, did not do so. He took him aloft and showed him red fire, green fire, white fire and black fire and said to him, make me something resembling this <laughs> he said before him speaking of Moses sovereign of the universe and when shall I get black or red or green or white fire and he said to him again after their pattern which is being shown thee in the mount 
And another said, God was like a king who had a fine image or picture of himself. And who said to one of his household, make me one like this. He said, my lord the king, how can I make one like this? And he replied, with your pigments, your paints. And I in my majesty. No, you do but your part. I'll look majestic. <laughs> so the Holy One, blessed be he, said to Moses, See and make. He said before him, Sovereign of the universe, and I a God that I can make this? Make like this? He replied, After the pattern. Uh, Rabbi Bezalel Buz- uh, said that God was like a king who showed himself to a servant in a beautiful robe adorned with diamonds and said to him, Make me... Make me one like this. He said, My Lord the King, how can I make one like this? So the Holy One, blessed be he, said to Moses, Make me a tabernacle. He said, he said before him, Sovereign of the universe, how can I make one like this? He replied, See and make. He said to him, How can I make one like this? He replied, After the pattern. As thou seest above, so make below. The idea being that you only have one job. Just make it like you saw. How can I make one like this? Just make it just like you saw. Copy it. I can't possibly make it like this. You just do your part. Just copy it. Just make it like you saw. What you saw is what I want you to make. The tabernacle was not designed by men. It was made according to the pattern of something that already existed in heaven. It is not a new thing. It is simply a new thing on earth. The tabernacle and temple had a single purpose so that God could dwell among his people. The furnishings were copies of real things. They were visible of what we cannot see. But Moses saw on the mountain. This is a a wonderful picture of what we're going to see going through this book. We can't see what Moses saw except by what Moses made. According to what he was commanded to make. From that we can see what Moses saw. Final comments? Questions? Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we are... uh, we are enthralled with your word and how you reveal yourself to us, Father. We thank you for uh, your faithful servant, Moses. We thank you for his uh, faithfulness, Father, and his explicit obedience. Lord, we thank you that his example is one that uh, we can look to. We thank you for the prophet that came after him, that was like him. Our master, Yeshua, who was Messiah and who rules forever from the heavenlies. And Father, we look forward to that day when he will return and rule here. And Father, he will set up his throne of his father David. And Father, he will set up a temple according to the pattern that Moses saw on the mountain. And Father, we thank you that you have given us this messianic hope and this picture and this longing for a return of our master to his throne in Jerusalem. We thank you for your word and we thank you for the everlasting character of it and that we can count on it. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen.
Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah atemet Lechai olam natabetochenu Baruch atah Adonai Noten haTorah Amen Blessed art thou Adonai our God King of the universe Who gave to us the Torah of truth And planted eternal life in our midst Blessed art thou Adonai Giver of the Torah Amen